Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is October the 8th, 2020, and this is a Thursday, and uh, we're going to have a standalone Just Jack show today that was inspired by last night's live stream from the Goose Group. The Unloose the Goose uh, Group did episode 13 last night, and... I've been pleased with the way Unloose the Goose is going, but I feel the last two episodes, 12 and 13, have started to actually evolve into what my vision was for Unloose the Goose. I think that as we started out, we were having some fairly sur surface-level conversations, but I also say we've only done 13 episodes. You know, We're doing an episode a week. There's, there's about eight people involved, and some of us are there some weeks and some of us other weeks. It takes time to develop the chemistry, that's necessary to have these uh, these high-level conversations. And last night and the week before, I think we really started to get into that level of, 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 of thinking, uh, that level of philosophy. And last night we talked about social engineering. And I've, I've been trying to also move the Goose Group more, and so is Nicole, towards solutions rather than just pointing to the problems as, as, as we've always done here. And so... I thought that we would end up talking a lot about the mechanical solutions to social engineering. And but the, but the formula for this is actually dramatically simple. And that is we identify the source of the control, the source of the social engineering, the source of being pushed into a reactive versus proactive life. And then once we identify it, we separate from it. So if we're constantly being tweaked off by the news, instead of being addicted to our outrage, we turn off the news. I've done entire podcasts on the value of turning off the news. If we're being sucked into social media, we, we separate from social media, or at least we place time limitations upon it. If we find our, that, our, that our children are coming home indoctrinated from the, the government education system, maybe we withdraw them and we begin a homeschool or private, you know, homeschool, private school at home Uh, type of arrangement, like a Solus Academy, like I have my, my grandchildren in. But when you think about it, like you can say all that and all the time I just took to say it. We're only two, two minutes and 20 seconds in. So what ended up happening as we identified ways of social engineering and programming is the conversation got high level. And some talking points came out of it that were just outstanding. And I want to say more about a select group of them today. And I mean, I, I had some things that I heard that I thought were amazing. And I had some things, the other uh, folks that were on last night, which was, it was a quorum last night. It was myself, Nicole Sauce, John Bush, and Xavier Hawk. Some things pulled out of me that I didn't even know were there. And so I think you'll really enjoy this show. And even though it's philosophical, it's also all anchored into things that you can do. And it's also the, the necessary thinking to go along with the mechanical solutions to actually make it work. Because there, what is the, with the old saying, there's, there's nothing worse uh, as far as a form of slavery than falsely believing yourself to be free. And that's true not just in a mechanical sense, but mostly in a mental sense. So if you think you've broken social programming, but it's still affecting you every day, it's almost worse than not knowing it at all. With that, let's start out with a quote of the day. This, this one really, though, I think will rise up to the, the, the level of thinking 
that we're having today. And when I get to my final point today from last night, it will tie back into it. This is by William James, who once said, The greatest use of a life is to spend it on something that will outlast it. The greatest use of your life is to spend it doing something that will still be impacting the world after you have gone dust to dust and ashes to ashes. It's another way of saying make the most of your dash. But a lot of times I think when we say that, there's there's two sides to it. There's this side and there's the other side about getting what you want in life, and that's so important. But you actually can get the things you want in life and do it in a way that leaves a legacy and will make someday someone look back at you with pride. And we'll save that for my final thought today. Anyway, um, let's kind of dig into this. So one of the things that came up last night in the discussion uh, made me think of three authors. They are James Cavanaugh, Richard Bach, and Carlos Castaneda. And all three of them are very, very different writers. Castaneda is kind of sci-fi, spiritual, metaphysical, trippy type guy. Uh, very almost hallucinogenic would be almost the, the word. Very uh, vision quest type stuff. Uh, then Kavanaugh was a Catholic priest who eventually left the priesthood and became uh, one of the most prominent poets in, in, in recent American uh, history. Uh, just a fantastic poet with an, an amazing view of life. His best book that he, he ever put out was probably, it wasn't poetry, by the way. It was, it was poetry in it. It was called God Lives. Amazing book. And then Richard Bach. And, and Bach is the one in the book Illusions that said it directly uh, through one of his characters. That if there's a billion people in the world, there's actually a billion worlds. That each one of us perceives this place in our own way. And that is natural. And it, if, if you think of it more like a Venn diagram, there are places where our worlds overlap with each other. So if we walk through the woods together, just I and one other person, we have a way that we perceive that walk and a way that we have an appreciation. I may have a greater appreciation for a small bird and you have, may have a greater appreciation for this glimmer of light that hits a, a, a leaf that's just begun to change color. And that bird exists in my world but not yours because you didn't observe it. And that leaf exists in your world and not mine. And even if I observed it, I didn't observe it at the exact angle you did the exact way that you did. But if we go through that experience together and we accept that it's okay that we both got different things from it, then we're existing in a natural state. Collectivism seeks to take away that amazing beauty of, you know, nine billion people in the world having nine billion individual worlds with great places of overlap in the Venn diagram of, of life. And reduce it down to two worlds where we each take a side and therefore we're easily divided and we're easily controlled. And so the key is to, to, to never let this type of programming, these systems are designed to create emotional and fear-based reactions from you, pull you out of that place where you understand that you live in your own world. That it's completely and totally okay for you to live in your own world. We even say that as though it's a negative. Well, he just lives in his own little world. She just lives in her own little world. So do you. 
And when you actually are extracted from it against your will, rather than by choice, that's where they begin to control you. And when I say they, I mean the systems. I don't even mean any individual. The systems are mechanisms of control. They are designed to control society. And that led to the concept, there's the, the whole concept to not be of the world, right? To not be worldly. And I think there's a value to that from a religious, spiritual concept. And I've heard this very uh, from, from various sources. If you look at the, 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 the Christian sources where most people would think you are not of this world, right? Um, or be not in the world. But I've heard from New Age sources uh, more along those lines of, I am in the world, but not of it. I'm here, but I'm not of this place. And there's a lot of different riffs on that concept. And, and I think there's some value and utility of the philosophy that comes from all of these different spiritual and religious sources of the concept of not necessarily being of the world or worldly or in the world or being apart from it. But that's kind of a, a metaphysical, spiritual level of looking at it. And even with that in mind, I would say you are part of the world. You're here. You exist. When you walk through a forest, that forest is different because you're there and because you're observing it. Because you're creating that world of your own that exists through the concept of, of biocentrism uh, with you're creating things simply in their observation. But you're also impacting it. The bird that is scared from one branch to another would not have made that move had you not been there. The footprints that you leave have an effect. We are part of the natural world. And we should never be separated from that. However, we are not of this world. And when I say this world, what I'm talking about is the world that was created for you. The world where you have to pick a side in a fight that you're not part of. The world where you constantly worry about things that have no impact over your life and or you have no control over. This is not a natural way to be part of the world. It is, it is the creation of a fictitious world that's used to suck you in. And then you start to respond to an artificial world and therefore you cannot behave in, in a natural state. And therefore you become more and more stressed and easier to control. So live where you are not of this world, as in the world that is created for you, but of the natural world, in the natural world that you observe. Next, I, I, I got this from John Bush, and I don't know that he even realized that he said it to, to this effect. But parenting increases wisdom. And parenting and having children are not necessarily the same thing. So there are plenty of people that are fathers or mothers, but they're not parents. Or they're piss-poor parents. When I say parenting, I mean the point where you look at that child and say to yourself, everything in the life of this young being is more important now than my own. Everything that I'm going to do forward even when I do things for myself, this other being will be considered in that action. And in the actions I take, their best interest will be considered. 
So that doesn't mean they get whatever they want or they're always happy, but it does mean I'm always thinking about tomorrow not just for me anymore, but for them. And the way John phrased this was that when he had a one-year-old and he went to a demonstration and he got in a cop's face and he ended up in jail, not for a long time or anything real serious, but he was in jail and couldn't take care of his kid and his kid was out there and he was in here, he realized, like, I'm not doing that anymore. Now, here's why it actually is the increase in wisdom. If it's only because that child is there, and it's only for that child's sake, and there's nothing more to it, and it would only be beneficial to do because the child exists, then it's not really an increase of wisdom. It's a response. It's a reaction. However... And we didn't, you know, you can only have so much of a conversation. We went on for like an hour and a half last night, and I, I didn't bring this up to him. But my question for John would have been if we would have gone down that road, <clears throat> and was there an advantage prior to your child into going to a demonstration and getting in a cop's face? Would any good come from that? Was that a wise decision? By getting arrested for getting in a cop's face or any other action that you would take at a demonstration? peaceful or otherwise, right or wrong, by doing that, did you benefit yourself or your cause? And I already know the answer would be no. Going to jail sucks. Been there once. Don't like it. Don't care for it. Um, whatever cause that John was behind at that point, I guarantee you nothing was advanced for the cause or for John's goals for the cause by going to jail. So the action of not repeating that mistake... Because now someone else is here, has now elevated your decision making to be better overall, even if that was not the case. And I find so much comes from parenting and caring for that other being, that other person, who cannot do for themselves the things that you do for them. That's your whole job as a parent, is to work yourself out of a job. But you can't set a, a one-day-old baby free. If we, if we took a one-day-old baby and put it in a field and said, you're free, we've committed murder and child abuse, that child will die, and no wolves are going to come along and raise that child like a storybook. So that child is actually born into a benevolent form of captivity, and then we then become responsible for this other being. And in doing so, our wisdom increases. Doesn't mean we get it all right, doesn't mean we don't make any mistakes, and we talked about some mistakes parents make last night. You can listen to the that, that episode for more on that, but... In the long run, I do believe that truly coming to parenthood with a servant leadership mindset makes us make better decisions, not just for our children, but for ourselves. That was just one example. Next, the opportunity for freedom can be given, but freedom itself can't be given. It must be claimed. That's something that they got out of me with some of the things that the others said, uh, specifically Xavier and, 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 and Nicole. Um This idea, and this is like, this leads to a lot of mistakes, I think, in even like at a, at a, at a macro level, like foreign policy. The idea that we can go to another country and make a people that have not fought for their own freedom free is, is, is fallacy. And the idea that you could do it for an individual, even that child that we just talked about, you can give your child freedom. You can't. You can't give your child freedom. You can't give your wife freedom. You can't give your neighbor freedom. You damn sure can't give somebody across the world that you don't even know or understand their culture freedom. Freedom cannot be given. 
what can be given is an opportunity for freedom. So as parents, and we'll get into training and teaching and leading later, but as parents, that's what we try to do. We try to clear the way. There's a proverb in the Bible that is used often to speak solely of discipline. It's train up a child in the way that he should go. But the verb in Hebrew for train up is the same verb that is used for what a midwife does when they clear the throat of a newborn so they can breathe. So a more accurate translation might be to clear the way for a child in the way that they go. And when they're old, they will not depart from it. They will learn from you, and they will remember the root, but you must clear their way so that they can, that they can grow up and that they can mature. And the same must be done with freedom. I have given, for instance, my grandson a, a, a tremendous opportunity of freedom that I never had at his age in how he gets his education. I have cleared the way for his freedom by providing him with an educational outlet that allows him to get his education from our home and do so in a way that gives him hours of his childhood back to do with as he pleases. But he's the one that embraced that opportunity that gets his work done, that when he wants to go do something like he's doing today with his grandmother, doubles up the work on day one so that he has total freedom on day two. He's claimed that freedom. If I went into a place that you lived at your county level, and your county had all kinds of restrictions on the things that we talk about doing, alternative construction of, of, of places you can live in, or off-grid, or gardening, or livestock, or whatever, And somehow, through manipulation, through force, through, through charisma, whatever, I removed all of those restrictions from the county you live in. You'd be no more free the next day unless you began to act upon those. And if you did not act upon them, and you did not encourage others to act upon them, and you did not get people using those freedoms, it would only be a short time before they were removed again. It is very important to understand this because then what you realize is that whatever hands you're dealt, you must claim as much freedom in it as you can now rather than expecting that someone will make it better in the future because they may or may not. But even if they do, it will still be on you to act upon it. The next, you have to be mindful of a term I never even used before last night. I came up with a term, micro-programming. I don't know if anybody else has ever even used that term, and maybe I should change it to micro-mental programming or micro-self-programming. And you have to debug your shitty code. That's something I have said before. But what I realized last night, and this is probably what happens a hundred times a day for a lot of people, as you begin to separate from this, remember I talked about being falsely assuming to be free? You have these recurrent thoughts that you know are of the old Jew. You hear something about what some ass clown politician did, and you have the flash of anger, and then you let it go, and you think you've done a great thing. But if you didn't stop and rewrite that little microcode you just wrote, it's still in your head, even though you think you let it go. The brain is a computer. You executed a command. When you hear about politician X, be angry. I'm going to let anger go now. I'm going to go on to fishing or eating a taco or whatever it is. 
changing my kid's diaper, whatever it is. You just you had that thought and you let it go. Well, you didn't you didn't cancel it out. When you start having these thoughts and you start to realize that these hooks of the system's control, the media, the education system, societal pressures, uh, rules that are seen as laws, even though they're neither rules nor laws, they're just accepted dogma. And those thoughts come in and all you do is let them go instead of rewrite them. The brain has now accepted that piece of shitty code. And what I know from marketing is if that piece of shitty code is written... That little microcode is written seven times. You will never let go of it without extreme effort. That's the seven-touch rule in marketing. If I touch you with a message seven times, if I get you to consume the message seven times, I will permanently write it into your brain to where it will affect your decision-making going forward. If it's buy Widget X, it may not result in you buying Widget X. But when you hear the term Widget X, you will have a reaction And that reaction is now useful to me as a marketer because either you'll buy it, you'll talk about it, and you can talk about it negative or positive. I don't care. I just care that. I care that you talk about it because if you talk about it, I've got branding. And if I have branding, I will have sales. Now, imagine you're doing that to yourself. Politician X says stupid thing Y. I hate Politician X. That happens seven times. Doesn't matter if it's over a year, a month, a week, a day. Doesn't matter. It's seven touches. That is now going to have a lasting, lingering effect. And the only way that you have to control that is when you have that thought, you must be mindful of it. And then you say, okay, that was an incorrect command, brain. And you can say it however you want, but this is the message. This actually does not affect me. Or I have no influence on this, and I must release it, and it is more important for me to focus on blah, blah. However you do it, you must rewrite that microcode. And you must do it to the point where it starts happening when you don't. You must be mindful at first, and if you do so, you do anything for 30 days, you create a habit. Once you create a habit, it's hard not to do it. If you, This is probably the most important thing I will tell you today. If you will commit, the hell with 30 days, from now until Thanksgiving, Whenever you have a thought that pulls at you toward control, you will stop. You will give yourself 15 to 30 seconds to rewrite that code. If you do that from now until Turkey Day, you'll never not do it for the rest of your life. And then you will accept your, your role. You are the primary programmer of your self-learning computer that is your brain. The system of control is exercised on the, on the fact that most people are lazy, pathetic, sorry-ass programmers of that brain and therefore will write shitty code over and over and over again if prompted to. Because the media doesn't put that thought in your mind. You do, in how you react to it. But it's up to you, and they know that you will. That's why a thousand affiliates run the same story with the exact same verbiage on the same day, even though they all claim to be independent. Because they know that. Next. Um, fear and pain are the mechanisms of control. They're the primary mechanisms of control. Fear and pain. If you look at the COVID mind control experiment is the best way I can describe it. We have people that are literally afraid of their family. They're afraid of people they don't even know. They all might have this terrible thing that for most people actually is not really that dangerous. We know the group that is at risk. And if you're in that group, I understand. I'm not putting you down. I'm not dissuading the impact on your life. 
But in general, you have like people that are like 24 years old and perfectly healthy, afraid of somebody being within six feet of them. Because that was the magic number that Anthony Fauci and the CDC and the WHO pulled out of their ass that turns out to have absolutely no impact whatsoever on the situation. But there are people now that even, even now that we know more and we know for a fact that that six feet is meaningless, they will never accept it. Because Why? Seven times you write that in your head. Stay six feet away. Stay six feet away. Stay six feet away. Stay six feet away. Stay. Seven times it's done. You have to actively and heavily reprogram your mind to let go of that number. And I'll tell you how powerful it is. Even those of you that think of yourself as being very independent thinkers. Had I not talked about any of this yet with COVID, and I just said the, word, the, 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 the phrase to you, six feet, wouldn't you have immediately associated it with COVID? That means that's, that's written in your brain. It's burned in. And you'll never burn it out. It'll never go away. There's no bleach bit for this. Right? Unless there's, that, that bleach bit in the brain means there's brain damage. What there has to be is overriding code. When this thought is engaged, this thought is the next step in the code. If this, then that. Until you do that, you're, you're being controlled. And this is done mostly through fear and pain. There are people screeching for a bailout bill from the government. The Democrats want 3.2 trillion, the Republicans want 1.7. And, and like, you gotta do something, man. One of them, pick one of them and do it. And some of these people doing that, they are in no financial stress at all, but they're afraid. And these are people that if you told them one year ago, you'll be pro 1.7 trillion dollar stimulus bill after we've already done a multi-trillion dollar stimulus bill in the same year because of a viral illness that is for the majority of people who get it not as lethal as the flu in a small segment of society far more lethal than the flu. Just for that, for that one thing, you'll be pro doling out trillions of dollars, trillions and trillions of dollars in a single year Sending checks to people for doing nothing at all. They would have said, you're crazy. And they would have passed the lie detector test. But once we put fear and pain in their lives, anybody that, so then the choice becomes, instead of, do we do this or not, do we do the Democrat plan with this much trillions, or do we do the Republican plan with that many trillions, and people actually pick one, when the answer should be, let's not do either one. And I know some of you are thinking, well, Jack, didn't you say that we're heading for a, a, a huge recession or depression now? Probably. And I don't think printing another $1.7 trillion out of thin air, adding to the national debt, pumping it into the economy, having it almost immediately disposed of will fix that. So now we're fixated on that because of fear and pain. Instead of what's the real issue? Why are we in economic problems? Because we shut our own economy down. If you're shooting yourself in the foot, you don't need a doctor until you stop pulling the trigger. But fear and pain will say, since I have a hole in my foot, I need a doctor. My foot hurts and I'm afraid I'm going to bleed to death. When the first action should be to stop making the wound worse. So whenever you feel fear or pain... And remember that fear and anger are the same emotion expressed differently. So fear, anger, pain. 
especially when it's done through messaging, whether direct or subtle, it's a mechanism of control. And the way that you get through fear and pain and anger is you, one, you learn how to suffer gracefully. You learn how to do without. This country's become weak because we don't know how to suffer anymore. And every immigrant that comes here from a part of the world that gave everything in their life to come here, will, when they really look at us, they will say some version of that. You don't know how to do without. You do not know how to suffer. You learn to suffer gracefully. And I'm not talking about being a miserable person. I'm like, okay, I don't have this thing. I'll be all right. I'll do this other thing instead. Ersatz, right? Substitution, whatever it is. We do without. Okay, fine. I won't have this thing. I'll be okay. And we learn how to deal with pain a bit more than anything else, though we learn to deal with fear. And we, there's a lot of procedures for this. One is to take the thing that you fear and don't obsess about it, but actually game it out to the point where you no longer fear it. And another is to simply develop solutions for the things that you fear. But you then have to see yourself as your own leader in dealing with fear and anger and pain. Because as long as that, that leader is apart from you, then that can be used to manipulate and control you. Next, and I, how, long, how many times have I said this, but it certainly came up last night. If you don't design your life, you're going to live the one designed for you. This is like the, like the, this is the, the mother code for this part of your life. This is the Genesis code. If I do not design my life, I will live the life designed for me because that predisposes the truth, right? Presupposes the truth. There is a system in place that's already designed a box for you. And it's more like a funnel. In fact, it's exactly like a funnel. It's an incredibly long funnel that when you're a baby, it starts out really, really wide. And as you make decisions in your life as you mature, the funnel becomes more and more narrow. To the point by the time you're 25 to 30 years old, your path for 99% of people is incredibly set. And those people will follow that path and they will, the, the walls of the funnel will close in. Your, your ability to choose differentials within your path will get more and more narrow all the way until your dash is over and you're in the ground and you're gone. That's how life works. Once you know that, you can realize that those walls, like in my laws of life, right, those walls are phantoms. Those walls are dreams. Those walls are illusions. You can walk through them anytime you want. But think about it. If, if you create a wall that looks impermeable to people and, and they have no choice but to go forward, as those walls close... And become tighter, they'll stay in between them even if they could walk right through them. If those walls are projected by some sort of hologram, which in our minds is exactly what's going on with these metaphorical walls, but you believe that wall to be solid, and something's pushing you from behind, in this case time, you'll never even try to go through that wall. How many, I've had people tell me, you know, I, when I was a kid, I really wanted to be a marine biologist. How old are you? 28? Get on with it. Well, you know, I have a job now. And so what? So what? You're living the life designed for you instead of designing the life you want to live. That is the number one way to break social controls and societal controls and societal programming. 
is to say, I'm going to step back and understand that I am the designer. I am the designer of my life, and this is the life I want, and therefore, I'm going to create the conditions where I'm going to live this way. And this is one of those places where there is a dichotomy. Dichotomies are generally false. In this case, no. It is, it is a true iron dichotomy, the law of iron dichotomy. That's, that's what this, this principle is. I just created a new thing, the law of iron dichotomy. You either design your life or you live the, the design that was given to you. There is no breaking that one. Once you know that, you might just be motivated enough to do it. Next, while you're doing that, part of that principle, and I got this from Nicole, work hard at avoiding the things in your life you hate without giving up what you love. She was talking about a person had a question, how do I deal with this thing at work? And her response was, you're probably not going to because you've chosen to work for somebody, therefore you have to do what they say. And I didn't bring this up, but that's exactly what I thought when she said that. Okay, so this person needs to design employment out of their life. If this is really a problem, if it's not really a problem, then you don't. If that job works in your design for your life, then that's okay. And then if that's a thing you have to not have, that you're not really crazy about, but you're okay with it, and it furthers the goal of the final design, okay. But if that's something that really you really don't like and you really don't want in your life. To not attempt to design it out of your life is to deny the power that the brain has. I've always said this, like, if you want to be wealthy, all you have to do is learn how money works and then use that knowledge with money and you'll have lots of money, even if you don't make much money. I know people that make $50,000 a year that, if, you know, that are in their 40s and are already multimillionaires. Because they understood money, and then they worked to make money work for them. I know people who are, you know, 40, 50 years old. On paper, they're not millionaires, but they live a life better than most millionaires. Because they've designed things into their life that no longer cost them money to give them what they want. It, 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 it's up to you how you do that. But the first place for me to start is identify the things in your life you hate and design those things out. Think of it like a living room. Let's say that you, you, you built a living room, or built a living room, you designed a living room, and you went out and you picked out a bunch of shit, and you put it all in your living room, and you, you, you thought you were kind of happy with it. And then, you walk in the living room, and you stand back and look at everything, and you say to yourself, that lamp is hit, I don't know what I was thinking when I bought that lamp. Are you going to let the sunken cost fallacy destroy your ability to like just like, I'm going to get rid of that lamp. You know, I, I can throw it out in the shed. I can throw it in the garbage. I can put it on next door or uh, Craigslist, if anybody wants to buy it. I can donate it to Goodwill, whatever. But I'm going to replace that lamp because it's freaking ugly. I don't want it in my room. And imagine what you would tell somebody if you went over to their house. You're like, that's kind of a funky-looking lamp. And you're trying to be nice about it, but you agree. Like, this is an ugly lamp. And the person goes, yeah, I hate it. And you go, why don't you get rid of it? Now, nah, you know, I bought it. When you think, like, what the hell's wrong with this person? Why would you sit there and look at this thing in your living room that you hate every day and you go, well, have you even looked at like a different lamp? Because they said, well, I need a lamp. I have to have light. Well, I understand that. There's, there's millions of lamps out there. So people will say that about a job they hate. Well, I have to have a job. Have you tried to find a job that pays as much that, 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 that you would prefer? Well, not really. 
You know, people say, oh, I'm always looking. Well, okay, what do you mean by looking? Well, I keep my eyes open. Well, that's not looking. Looking is assessing your skills and assessing the market and determining what you need to do to move to a better place. And then taking the action necessary to do that. But instead what we do is we live with things we hate and we don't attempt to get rid of them. This is insanity. Our Paleolithic ancestors never did this. If they were living in a place and like, you know, this place sucks, they, they just started walking in a different direction and found something new. It ain't that hard. The belief you can't is a system of control. Next, if you choose a side in this fight, and I'm talking about the political fight today, you aid the actual enemy, you are reacting versus acting, and you are not in control. You cannot pick a side in this fight. Quote of the day from earlier this week or last week was, you know, it's a strange game from war games. The only winning move is not to play. That's where we're at in this. You can't pick a side in this without immediately becoming completely controlled. And you can see it in the polarized left and the polarized right in this political argument right now. They will make any excuse for their side and they will find fault with anything the other side says. Even when their side is wrong and especially when their side is wrong. They they will rationalize anything. They will rationalize anything their side does as being okay or being justified, no matter what it is. And they will condemn anything their supposed enemy says. What does that make you? It makes you completely subject to manipulation. So if I'm the guy that is actually exercising systems of control, and I want all the Republicans to react a certain way, I know exactly what any given message will cause them to do. And therefore, it's like you've put a frog on a chessboard. And you want to prove that the frog can be the the rook in the game. The king's rook. Right? The frog is going to be the king's rook, and the frog is going to make all the moves that the king's rook would make. And all we have to do is heat up each little square, except the one we want the frog to stop in, and that frog will go everywhere, and the frog will, if the guy running the the, the electricity is really good at, at being a rook in chess, the frog will always make the right move at the right time. That frog has no say in this whatsoever. When you pick a side in this fight, I'm telling you right now, you become that frog on that chessboard. You're worse than a pawn. You're worse than a pawn, because the frog probably thinks he's making his own decisions. At least the pawn knows nothing and is simply a piece of plastic or ivory. Correct? But the frog is a living being that believes itself to be making a decision that's in its own best interest, but it's going exactly where the player wants it to go. And if you choose a side in this fight today, as polarized as it is, you can't help but be controlled. There's no way you won't be. I'll leave it at that. Next, this is really important for parenting, but it's also very important for leadership and self-leadership and teaching and, and being proactive in the world. Know the difference in training, teaching, and leading. There are three entirely different things that often get used interchangeably. Let's start with training. It's the simplest one. And it is the, the, the system of the greatest level of control, and it can be done directly 
or it can be done in a way where it's so subjective that the party being trained doesn't know they're being trained. To train is to condition an organism so that it must respond in a specific way. It, you, you will never hear somebody say, well, I'm training my grape, I'm teaching my grapevines. You don't teach a grapevine to grow up and then two laterals going out for a certain number and then stop growing there and then to shed a certain amount of its growth every year. You don't teach a grapevine. You train a grapevine. Training is such a, 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 a primitive concept that I can train a grapevine. I can train a dog. I can train a slime mold. Bonsai trees are trees that are trained to grow small. They're not taught. And when we train a child or we train a doctor, we train that living, breathing organism that has independent thought to act before thinking, and sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's good. It keeps a soldier alive. If my buddy's hit, I'm grabbing this med kit right here and applying this pressure, and you're trained to do it over and over and over and over to as soon as you see it, as soon as the, the, the programming code runs, you start taking that action. And there's a place for train. I want my grandson trained. He gets out of the car in the parking lot, head up, eyes out, pay attention. Because I don't want swish. Run over by a car. I want him trained to that. I want that to be so written into his command center that it, it stays with him for the rest of his life. And when he gets out of a car in a parking lot, even though he's reading some shit on a phone, when he's you know, driving or being driven by an automated car someday, and he's so conditioned to look at that screen that I open the car door... That the, the phone goes down, the screen goes down, head up, eyes out. I want that level of training. If I want him to train his children that way, I have to teach him. I can train him to do something, but to teach him I must explain the why and the consequences of not doing it. And then in the future he'll be able to assess a situation and determine whether to use his training or rely on his intellect based on his teaching. Is this situation like a parking lot? Do my head, head, does my head need to be up and my eyes need to be out? If I don't add the teaching to the training, it only works in a parking lot. It doesn't work when he's walking through a crowd and the vibe changes from... Something's everything's fine to something's not quite right. If he's trained enough, maybe there's a little bit of that situational awareness, but does he know when to ramp it up? Does he know when to go in the head up eyes out full on? That comes from teaching. Teach training is two plus two equals four. Training is when we, we teach a child to memorize all their addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division one through twelve or zero through twelve. We train that. To the point where I say seven times seven and you say forty-nine. You haven't you're not exhibiting the fact that you were taught when I say seven times seven and you say forty-nine. You've memorized that. Unless you're some sort of savant, when I say seven times seven, you don't see seven rows of seven and image that to an answer. Most people, most people who, who were trained properly in the use of math, see, it's a place for, it, it is a place for training, right? It, it, it is good 
to be able to do these things. And that set of numbers, 0 to 12, that we usually use to teach children, is so fundamental that as we then teach them mathematical principles, they can always rely on their training as they're executing their learning and their teaching. And their, so that when a kid looks at something and says, how do I figure out how many feet of board I need to do this? Now they're using their training plus their teaching to make something happen. Leading is to do things in a way that naturally makes others want to emulate what you're doing. Even if they're strictly following at that point, if you're truly leading, that person's thinking, I would like to one day rise up to that level. And you can be leading as you teach, or you can be leading just by leading. And to be a master of resisting systems of control, you have to know when and how to train yourself, when and how to teach yourself, and when and how to lead yourself. And without that, you will always be living the life designed for you. Even if you design your own life, you will never execute it. You will never, that, if you've, if you've done this before with me, if you've designed a life and then damn it, none of that shit happened, you are not training yourself, teaching yourself, and leading yourself. If you put that with a lifestyle plan, you will get most, not all, there is no utopia, but you will get most of what you really want in the world. And you will get a lot of what you don't want out of your world. Remember, since there's 9 billion people or whatever there is now, 8.6 billion, whatever it is, and 8.6 billion worlds, you don't have to eliminate something from the world to push it out of yours or to at least minimize its impact on yours. You are the designer. You are the decider. You must train, teach, and lead yourself. And if you don't do it, somebody else is. That's a choice you have to make for yourself. Remember, for teaching, the formula See it, do it, teach it, know it. Start doing everything that you want to add to your life that way. See it, do it, teach it to somebody else, and then you actually know it. And until you can do all three, you don't really know it. Next, this one came from Nicole directly. Question everything, especially your own beliefs. Nicole has this way of saying why perfectly, like a little child. Why? Why? There is a piece of us that will always be that child. You don't cease being a child when you grow into a man or a woman. You are a child and a man and a woman. You are still that person. We don't change. We, we continue. This is a, a, a temporal concept that's very hard to explain, but it's easy to understand once you do. It's, it's a weird thing. But I would express it this way, and this is going to hurt some of your brains, and some of you just think it's nonsense. There is only now, and now is always becoming more now. That, that's what I'm saying here. There is only now, and now is only becoming more now. So if you are 20 years old, 10 years ago, and, and our temporal thinking as is, is, is limited beings con, constrained by time and space, that are both illusions, by the way, that was 10 years ago. Ten years ago, I was a ten-year-old boy. No, today, you are everything that ten-year-old boy was and everything in our concept of time that occurred between being that ten-year-old boy and this twenty-year-old man. You're all those things. And you're everything that that ten-year-old boy was before he was ten. That is still in you. That is still in you. 
And that ability to question why, even when you know the answer, because have you ever had a kid say why, but you know the kid knows the answer to the question that they're asking? Because they're pulling at that thread. Is there any more to it? Never cease that. Even when you believe that even when I ask why I believe this, it's not going to matter. I'm still going to believe it. Still do it. Go through the exercise. You either modify your belief, enhance your belief, change your belief, or become more, you know, more rooted in that belief. Never fear to question anything, especially you. Because if you're being programmed, there's a chance that no matter how sure you are that that belief is your belief, it's not really your belief. It's somebody else's. And even if you determine that belief is yours, and it is true, in questioning it, you will understand others and why they don't agree with you and why they have their own world that they live in, their own sphere, where that thing is totally different. And then maybe you'll stop trying to change their minds. Because people only change their minds when they're ready. And if you want to be frustrated, go out and try to convince people who are not ready that they are wrong in the way that they think. And you will be a miserable bastard person. You will. You will hate your life. No matter how good your life is. You have to release. And then live and lead. And enough people will follow that you'll be able to help people move forward in there now. And you can let go of the ones that don't want to follow. Leadership is something you choose to do. Someone following that leadership is something they choose to do. And you cannot force them to follow you. You can put them in a position where they have no choice, but their heart's not in. They'll say whatever they, they think you need to hear so you'll shut up and leave them alone, but they don't believe it. Next. This was something that came from a comment. It's a very interesting one. I was talking about how, because Nicole was talking about this concept of freedom, and freedom's never won, and we'll talk about that in a bit. We always have to keep working on it. But somebody, and I said, you know, who here would have called themselves an agorist or an anarchist? Because I had, you know, four people there, including myself, that all call us ourselves that today, 15 years ago. And, and the only one that said they would have was Nicole. But not long before that, she was also a socialist. So about as far away from that as you can get. And my point was that we all start at a point and we all have to continue to move forward. But somebody said, whoa, 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 wait a minute in the, in the comment section during that live stream. We're all born agorists. Tell me a kid who hasn't gone out and, and done some sort of commerce with their friends or some sort of haggling with their friends. And I would say that is a statement that's true. We are all born agorists, sort of. Because it's such a broader philosophy simply than trading with others and, and exchanging a value. But it is an interesting thing that we all have some level of this natural anarcho state within ourselves. And I think where it becomes the most useful is that if, if we are that, then everyone around us is. And we make the most advances in our relationships through where we agree rather than where we disagree. Because someone asked me, you know, like, well, what do I do to get this person thinking more clearly, and I'm like, take them fishing. Really, I mean, go go do something that, that's totally separated from this. And, and focus on the place that you guys see things more clearly and the same. 
And I think that one of the ways that you can open people to the free market approach is to do business with them in a free market way. And then point out that they didn't have any problem doing it that way, even though the system says it was wrong. We're all born agorists, sort of. Know when you're worried about your children versus worry, worrying about what society thinks about them. So, so John Bush has done a lot of self-work to be the best parent he could be. I have a tremendous respect for him that way. And he went from like this radical unschooling learning to where you let kids do whatever they want to realizing, yeah, you know, maybe there needs to be some more leadership and teaching and even a little bit of training here, and you can still allow for mostly choice and freedom, but there are some things that kids do need to learn for the happiness of everybody that lives together. Because you can't be completely selfish and not make the people around you miserable. And in that... He would say that he, you know, that a lot of times he thinks parents get so wound up and so forceful with their children because they're worried about what the neighbors will think or keeping up with the neighbors or what have you. And and I pointed out I don't really think that's what it really is. I think it can feel that way, but what it really is, if you're truly a parent, you truly love your kids. There's times you're thinking, if I don't get him or her to behave this way, what will happen to them when they get out in society? Okay, you got to let go of that. Like I said, I want to train my grandson in a parking lot head up, eyes out, because a car is not subjective. Being run over by a multi-ton machine and crushed into oblivion, either killed, seriously injured, life-altering injuries, ending up in a wheelchair for the rest of your life because you didn't pay attention, this is not subjective. This is not opinion-based. This is life and death, literally. This is a skill set of situational awareness that must be learned for this child to safely navigate in our world. Dressing funny is not actually a problem unless I let it be. And that kid has plenty of time between now and the time that they're in their 20s and trying to get a job to figure out how to dress for their job. And maybe the crazy shit they're doing will actually be beneficial. I don't know that. So we have to understand when we are teaching our children, since we become social programmers of our own children, how to do it responsibly and to differentiate between this is something that actually is necessary from this is something that's very beneficial, so I very much want it to happen, to this is something that I think is really important, that isn't. That isn't. And I think that you get a, a totally different perspective on time the longer you're around and grandparents this is why you sometimes you go and you take your kids to your parents house and you see the way the parents are with your kids and you're like who is this person who is this chilled out relaxed old man that the kids absolutely adore that never stresses about anything where was this guy when i was growing up That guy, when you were growing up, like I said earlier, now is becoming more now, is still in there. He's just everything he was then, plus everything since then. And the biggest thing I think grandparents learn how to do is let go of all the piddly bullshit that really doesn't matter, where parents mean well, but they think everything is earth-shatteringly important. It isn't. Your kid wants to wear a shirt backwards, to Denny's, take him to Denny's with his shirt backwards. 
Somebody might make fun of them. Who's going to make fun of your kid at your table at Denny's? It'll be okay. He'll figure out. I mean, and that's just an example. Anything like that. Let go of the piddly shit. Worry about teaching children the things they need and letting go of the things that are really not necessary. Next. Again, Nicole said this one. Freedom is never won. She's like, you know, you don't just say, yay, we won freedom, and then you don't have to worry about it anymore. Like, you have to constantly fight for it. The way I put it is it's always being pushed forward or it's driven backwards. When I give you your TikTok sermons at the end of months or the end of quarters, TikTok, TikTok, the clock ticks for us all. What I say? Life's not a sliding scale. You're either moving forward in your freedom and your liberty or time is pushing you backwards. And that's what I'm talking about, exactly what Nicole was talking about. No matter how much liberty and freedom you have built into your life, if you're not continuously working on just a little bit more, if you're not constantly being like those pigs that escape the ranch and become feral pigs, testing the wire all the time, can I expand my territory one inch today? If you're not doing that, the fence is moving in. The funnel is getting narrower as time pushes you forward. It's up to you. You can choose that path, or that path can be designed for you. And it has to be constant vigilance. The price of liberty is eternal vigilance. That came up from several different people last night. But I think that when we say it that way, is that famous quote, we're talking about the price of freedom for a nation. But we've learned something. I can't give you freedom. I can only... I can only do some things to aid your opportunity to express your freedom. The eternal vigilance must be in our lives for our freedom. The best thing you can do for your neighbor's freedom is exercise your own. You've been taught that that's selfish. That's not selfish. That's selfless. The most selfless thing you can do is truly live your best life on your own terms because it takes so much damn courage to do so. And you know what? You're worth it. I was going to say it's worth it, but I think that's more what you need to hear. You're worth it. You're worth the courage necessary to live what you most want in your life. And your freedom will never be won. You can only continue to expand it. It's never over. Next, once we know who and what we are, the real question is how do we make it work? This is where you have to avoid Messiah complex. We talked about that last night too, man. Like where you figure this stuff out and you want to go tell everybody about it. They don't want to hear about it. You know, let, let's just take your religious beliefs and put them on the shelf for a minute and assume that you are a very happy uh, agnostic atheist. And somebody keeps coming to your front door right in the middle of your football or basketball game every day at the same time on Sunday to tell you the good news. Do you not start to feel very resentful for them? And any possibility that you, and I'm not saying not to evangelize if that's your thing. I'm saying like if you keep doing it to the same person over and over again who's told you they're not interested, any possibility of them seeing things your way becomes less and less likely every time that you do it. The best way you can evangelize a faith or a lifestyle is by living it and being observed living it and being observed that it works well for you. Because that makes other people want what you have. Doesn't mean you don't ever talk about it, but you certainly don't, if you're smart, you don't beat people over the head with it again and again because they will entrench more and more. And this is on any ideology. 
you have somebody that's anti, anti-gun rights and you constantly beat them up with why everybody should have a gun, you will make sure that person never becomes open to the concept of firearms ownership can not only be responsible, uh, but is actually beneficial. They will never open up to it. It's a messiah complex. You think you can save them from themselves. You can't. So what that means is you're going to wake up to this point where you realize all these things are true and that you can have all these things in your life. And you're going to look around and go, man, I wish everybody knew this. And then you're trying to drag them with you. And you're basically taking, you know, when you first figure this out, I want to put it this way. You are driving a piece of shit jalopy car with bald tires with all kinds of excess baggage on it. And instead of saying, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start throwing all this excess baggage off the car so it'll go a little bit more so I can kind of get where I'm going and start to advance and then maybe I can afford some new tires and then the car will do even better and then after I get new tires for a while and I can get a whole new car. No, you're taking your piece of shit jalopy full of your baggage and you're throwing your neighbor's baggage on your roof and wondering why your car won't go. That's what happens when you get this mindset going on. Instead of saying, okay... Since I know that I want these things, and society's not exactly set up for this, and other people are not exactly going to be in, uh, in line with my ideas and want to be part of them, and I'm going to have to make this work, and I'm still going to have to get along with people, how do I exist as this free, anarcho-libertarian being in a world full of people that are clinging to the ground while I'm trying to fly? And I don't have the answer because everybody has their own world. Everybody's version of flight will be the same, or I mean different. And the mechanism by which you will attain it will be different. The commonality is that most of the creatures around you are clinging to the rocks. And in Richard Bach's book, Illusions, the author I mentioned earlier, it starts out with this like short story that's written very much like a fable. And it's actually in the book, it looks like there's like the fingerprints of a mechanic, oily fingerprints on the pages, and it's handwritten. And it's a creature in a, a stream. That's, it doesn't say what kind, because it doesn't really matter, right? It could be an amoeba, it could be a shrimp, it could be anything. And all of the creatures, as the stream's water is going so fast above them, are terrified of the current. And they grip the stones, and they cling to the ground. And one of the creatures says... If we let go, that current will take us somewhere. And all the others say, hey, hey, you let go, and that current you worship will bash you on the rocks and destroy you. But the creature doesn't listen to the others. And eventually he lets go. And yes, for a time he's bashed upon the rocks, but then the current lifts him above. And downstream, creatures of the same kind that never heard the discussion point up and say, look, there's one like us, but he flies. And the, the creature that's flying is simply following the current, living the life that it was born to live. And he says, if you let go, you can fly too. And they don't let go. They cling. And then they tell stories of that amazing, amazing creature that flew above them till it becomes legend, but no one will let go. So many people wake up to that that great message that you can have what you want, build what you want, do what you want, but they won't let go of the rock. And they idolize others that have. And they try to convince their neighbor to let go of their rock before they let go of their own. Told you this got deep today. 
will you let go? Will you get to the point where you now you have to jump? You've got all the way up to the line. You know what you need to do. You either are going to stay put and cling, or you're going to jump. And understand that you may get bashed about the rocks a bit when you jump. But it can be okay. Because you can make another decision, and another decision, and another decision. But you have to do it for you. You have to figure out how to make it work when the majority of rounds you have no interest in doing so. And then last. This was the biggest thing I got out last night. You're going to be an ancestor someday. Consider that as you take your actions today. Think about the reverence we use for the phrase, our ancestors. When we say our ancestors. Especially when we think back seven generations or more. We think back to the great men and women. We think way back into the ancient ancestors. Thousands of years ago. And think how how grateful we are for what we have because they were willing to deal with things and situations we never could have in our own mind anyway. And we have this, this separation from the concept of our ancestors because we're, we're now and they're then. Remember, now is only more now. If you see it that way, then you understand that someday, someone, somewhere, will use that term, our ancestors. And they will mean you. Will you be worthy of the title ancestor? And no one's going to look back and value you as an ancestor because you voted a certain way. No one's going to look back and value you as an ancestor because you worked really hard at your job. They will value you for the life that you create for yourself. For the liberty that you lived with. So that that little piece that broke off of your world and invaded another and invaded another and invaded another made their life in the future better because you lived in the past. That's what being... An ancestor is. Whether you like it or not, you are making history now. You are part of ancient history that just hasn't yet become ancient history. There will be a time. There will be a time when when somebody says 5,000 years ago, our ancestors, and then fill in the blank, And you will be one of those ancestors. Is the life you're living worthy of the legacy you're going to have, whether you asked for it or not? The minute you make that revelation, when you understand that, you'll stop having time for all these systems of control. And you'll get with designing, building, and living the life you're supposed to have. And if you can't have 100% of it, you owe it to those people in the future to have as whatever the percentage is you can have, you owe it to them to do that. If it's 50%, you have no business living it at 49. If it's 80%, you have no business living it at 79.9. None. It's irresponsible to your legacy to live with less 
than you can have of what you truly want. And I know a lot of people, that's scary language. That's scary words. Because what about the person who wants to kill a bunch of people? They're going to, they are a, here you go, I, a word I don't use much. They are a fucking excuse. Is that you? No, then shut the fuck up and get on with it. Because that person is bad anyway. They're dangerous anyway. They're going to do the bad things they're going to do anyway. And yes, they may intersect your life. And you might have to deal with it. So what? So what? Living in the world where what if prevents you from what should be and what should become. And most of the things we worry about like that never happen anyway. And they're nothing but fucking excuses. It's up to you. Will you continue to let those excuses, those weaknesses, those things in your mind that are based in fear and uncertainty and doubt and an unwillingness to deal with discomfort, suffering, and pain? Or will you train yourself? Will you teach yourself? And will you lead yourself so that when you're gone, and your ashes have gone to ashes, and your dust has gone to dust, and there is nothing left of you but an ancient memory, that you will be worthy. That you will have, you will have lived a life of such worth that you are worthy of being referred to as an ancestor. With that, we've wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast. Um, part of me wishes this was a Friday. Because, boy, what a way to go into a weekend. But we will have a great show for you guys tomorrow with the Expert Council. Um, with that, if you do like this show and the work that we do, remember you can always support us by doing your online shopping where? tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. If you shop at tspaz.com, no matter what you buy, you will support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. My item of the day for you today is dun -dun -dun, kitchen shears. Yeah, Earth-shattering, life-altering product. No, nope. It does belong in your kitchen, though. It does belong on your homestead. Kitchen shears are one of the most versatile tools that we can own. And the thing is, you would think they're something really easy to find a good pair of. They're not. For years, I recommended a brand called Red Yeti Wear. I have a pair still, and I wish I would have bought more when they were available. They were the best shears ever made. What I have now, and I recommend now, was what I recommended before they came into my life and then went away, and they're not made anymore, at least not real ones. Um, Fiskers. Uh, they are an incredibly good pair of shears for about 15 bucks and change. And there's a couple things that you want in, Chris, uh, in, in kitchen shears. They need to be powerful. They need to be designed right so you can take the backbone out of a chicken as though it had a zipper in it. That's that's kind of my, my viewpoint. Um And to do that, they should not only have great design, they need micro serrations to be able to hold that edge over time. Most people aren't going to get really good at sharpening scissors. Fiskars does both of those things. Next, they must come apart to be cleaned properly. I am not going to cut the backbone out of a chicken today and then chop up some you know, herbs next week into a salad with the same shears if there is any chicken icky ick, uh, you know, salmonella crap or something like that inside the shears. And if you cannot take them apart, you cannot guarantee that. Next, I know this is crazy, but when you use them, they shouldn't come apart on their own. Most of them do. Next, they should not cost the dear Lord's fortune. They're not that hard to make, even though it doesn't seem like many people can make them right. Fiskars ticks every box. They will make your life a little bit better. Read the write-up today on the Survival Podcast for all the types of things that we use them for. 
Uh, but these do belong in your life. Harvesting from the garden are so many things that they do. Aquaponics, hydroponics harvesting, much better to use this than a knife uh, or what have you because you get a cleaner cut, less damage to the plant, more regrowth on cut and come again. Tons of different uses for them. Inexpensive, and they last a lifetime if you'll just take care of them. Check them out today at tspaz.com, Fiskars 7-inch, take apart shears. Remember, you would have got an email and you would have got an announcement or whatever if you stay connected with us. Be on the Telegram channel. That's probably the best way to stay in touch with us now. The email's great, but email has problems. Sometimes your ISP decides that you don't need to read my email. And no matter what you've done, even when you, I know even when you whitelist people, sometimes it seems like emails just disappear. Telegram channel is great. You get on the Telegram channel, every time I put something on the blog or put out a video, you just get a quick little blurb and a link. And you can decide when you want to look at it. And then you have a record of it. It's all in that app underneath the Survival Podcast channel. Learn all about that by going to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Get Social, and you can find all the ways that you can do that. With that, let's wrap things up with our song of the day. Um, I picked a song of the day that let me give you one bonus with today's concept. One of the other things that I talked about last night, I mentioned it in passing, but I didn't have it as a bullet point in the show, is separating yourself from this system of control by doing something you truly love that, that puts you in a state where you can't even think about these things that generally control you through reactionary thought. And what I talked about last night on, on Loose the Goose was I've never in my life stood on the Gulf Coast up to my knees in the water with a fishing rod in my hand. And a shark or a big redfish or something like that taking drag. And that one thin line going a hundred yards out into this beautiful ocean. And it's that fish versus me with the reality that it is that one thin line. That everything is what it is. This is real. This is not fake. This is not artificial. It's not an idea. It's not a story that I read. It's a thing that I'm doing right now. I've never in that moment thought, hey, you know what? I really hope, you know, ass clown B wins over ass clown A. I've never even thought, hey, gee, I'm dealing with an IRS audit right now. I've never thought about anything negative in my life in that moment that I and that fish are doing battle. I've never sat in a tree with my bow waiting for a deer. I've never watched that arrow fly and bury through that chest and take that animal's life so that I can feed myself and my family. And in that moment, ever thought... I really should be working harder on Project X. All I've ever thought is, this moment is perfect. And it can be different things for different people. For some people, it's just taking a walk. For some people, maybe it's golf. A lot of games that are individual, even if you're playing with other people, but the, the game itself is individual. You're playing tennis, there's a reaction. You're playing baseball, the pitcher throws the ball, you hit the ball. You're in the field, you catch the ball. There's a reaction. You hit a golf ball, it sits there. It does what you make it do. No one else, you, the elements, and your actions have 100% control. You have to be in that moment. I don't, if you think I love golf now, I don't even, I hate it. But I understand why others do. You find that thing, and in that moment, you separate. And even though this song's not about any of that, it's about that separation and about the value of that separation by one of my favorite people of all time, Jimmy Buffett. It's called incommunicado. It is in those moments of not being touched by the systems of control that we experience true freedom and the true natural state. 
And it is only in experiencing that true natural state that we can recognize when those things begin to re-enter our lives and begin to sick their hooks into us and impede on that. It is only when you feel better that you knew you felt bad. So take some time. It's not Friday yet, but the weekend's coming. Take some time. For some period of time, every day, every week, every month, for some periods of time, be incommunicado. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Still I am in communion